Welcome to church, everybody. Hey, what about that, huh? Yeah. Thank you. That was amazing. You made me cry a few times. I'm not gonna, don't tell anybody. Um, yeah, say hi to your neighbor. When I look back through history and consider all the sacrifices in every war, and I try to grasp it all, come to grips with it, stand in reverence of all those willing to give their lives for something bigger than themselves, I am stunned by the sheer numbers. All those lives, all those families serving their country, I can't always comprehend it. My heart is not big enough to take it all in. That each one didn't come home. What they lost for their service. What we gained for their courage. Today, I stop to remember. Every single number is one soldier. One sailor who got up in the morning and put on a uniform. One Marine who answered the call to fight for freedom. One airman who knew the cost and went anyway. One man or woman who paid the ultimate price for many. And the freedom I live in now. Today, I remember. goes. Mr. Beckett, are you ready? Excellent. Excited to learn from you, bud. Oh, he's fancy this time. So, today I chose to do Joshua chapter 5, 13 through uh, chapter 6, uh, the Battle of Jericho is what it's called. I really had a hard time deciding on what I wanted to do, so I just opened up my Bible and prayed to look for it and came up with this. So, yeah. So, we're going to start in Joshua five thirteen through 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for the enemies? Neither, he replied, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I thought from what I found from this passage, I found it shows that 
Joshua was kind of a devoted follower of God. I mean, if someone just came up to me and was like, okay, so take your sandals off. I mean, I'd be a little suspicious at first, but it'd be kind of weird right now. Because if say, Dad, I didn't know you. Take off your sandals. But, okay. So the next part, uh, and we should all try to be like him, faithful enough to trust a stranger we didn't know. Okay. Now, Joshua 6, 1 through 7. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. And again, I found that Joshua is a devoted follower of God and believes in God because, yeah, and uh, that shows that we should all be faithful like him. Now, Joshua 6, 8 through 14. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward blowing their trumpets in the ark uh, blowing the trumpets in the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them the armed guards marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark all the time the trumpets were sounding but Joshua had commanded the army do not give a war cry do not raise your voices do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout then shout so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city Circling it once, then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets were for seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets kept sounding, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. Uh, And another thing I found from this part of it is that they'll do what the Lord asks of them, which is pretty neat. And uh, Joshua 15, um, yeah, it should be 15 through 21. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab and the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the vote, from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel 
liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sac sacred to the Lord and thus go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the end, at the sound of the trumpet, uh, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city of the Lord and destroyed the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. And the main part from this I found was when God says he'll do something for you, he'll do it. In conclusion, we should all be faithful and remember that God will do what he says he'll do. All right, good morning, church. Give me just a second. So uh, I'm just going to continue. You know, we've been working our way through the Bible, and so this Sunday would have been the first half of John chapter 5. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Derek Van Wy. I am Pastor Phil's eldest son. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to have to forewarn you a little bit. The structure of this message is a little willy-nilly. So I'm going to walk through each of the individual verses and pull out references and stuff. So I'll preach to each individual verse in John chapter 5, uh, 1 through 15. Um, but there's going to be, um, uh, let's see. Uh, but there's going to be particular emphasis on the subtler emphasis on Jesus's authority that becomes far uh, less subtle in verses 16 through the end of the chapter. But that is for my father to explain next week. know the order of my Bible. All right, here we go. So we're going to read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. 
the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Uh, all righty, so we're going to go back to verses 1 and 2. All right, so um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's uh, verse 1. Um, so this is for context. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem for either of three different feasts. All right, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Weeks. Um, these are um, three festivals which are outlined in Deuteronomy 16.6 and are the only Jewish festivals that require all males of a household to return to Jerusalem uh, for the celebrations, all right? And so that's why Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's a male in his household coming back for the festivals. Um, as a quick side note, um, a lot of biblical scholars believe that this is the Feast of Tabernacles due to the proximity to the harvest, as mentioned in John 4:35, as well as Jesus was performing miracles later in chapter 6, which references Passover's being near, which is John 6, 4. Um, so this is a heavily based assumption on uh, John being in chronological order, and that's why we don't actually know, but that's why people guess. Um, the harvest would have come on or have been close by chapter 5, which is in the early fall, and it occurs before Passover, which fits the Feast of Tabernacles because it is when the Feast of Tabernacles occurs, early fall, and before the Passover, which is early spring. So the Passover is in early spring. Um, my Bible actually references John 2.13, which may occur just before chapter 5 chronologically, and says that the, this is the feast of, feast of Passover. So really, we don't know, but there are a couple pretty good guesses right there. Um, but for the rest of this, um, Jesus is actually returning from a rather long round trip. In chapter 4, um, Jesus leaves Judea on his way to Galilee. Um, chapter, John chapter 4, 1 through 4 reads, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Um, so it is on this trip that Jesus speaks to the Samarian woman at Jacob's well, heals the nobleman's son, and then makes the return trip to Jerusalem. Um, so this is a 79-mile walk one way. Uh, it takes about 34 hours nonstop, so um, you better have your boots that are made for walking. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like I said uh, previously, all males are required to be in Jerusalem for these feasts, and thus Jesus is on the trek back. I, I mean, I make these, I've been making these treks more and more frequently, you know, popping back for weekends and proms and then just driving right back four hours back to Denver. And so, you know, the fatigue and the road weariness is something fierce. Um, but, you know, Jesus, he's back in Jerusalem, and he comes and he goes to the pool at Bethesda, which is near the Sheep's Gate. All right, the Sheep's Gate is referenced in Nehemiah 3.1, 3.32, and 12.39. Uh, 3.1 reads, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananiel. In between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. And then Nehemiah 12:39, and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the Tower of Hananiel, the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. 
Now, Jewish tradition actually holds that due to the construction by both the priests, those who bring offerings before God, and goldsmiths and merchants, uh, those most likely to produce strong offerings, that this gate actually represents the forgiveness of sins. So you'll see that on the map that the sheep gate is on the right, which is uh, on the east edge there. And I'll walk over and point in a second. Um, so the priests built the gate itself. So sorry, I got a point to make it. So you'll see that the sheep gate is up there on the northern end of the temple. So the, sheep, uh, so the priests built that all the way straight up. And you'll see there are two towers there. Um, one on the corner there, so that's the Tower of Hananiel. And then there's one more tower in there, and that's the Tower of the Hundred. And then the goldsmiths and the merchants actually built from that corner there on the royal porch. You'll see on the southern end of the temple, that upper room is there on the corner, and they built the rest of that from the southern up to the gate itself. Alrighty, and so they, they call that the, the, the Mifkad gate uh, the, that the goldsmiths and the merchants built from, but that is more commonly known as the inspection gate. Um, and so the reference in chapter 12 is a little bit random, um, but it is simply as soon as they um, finish building, uh, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they had this massive celebration and they walked the various trumpets and orchestras along the walls and thus you would have had um, just row after row of trumpeteers and violinists and whatever instruments they had back then to play. So the symbolism and the tradition of this gate are absolutely crucial for this entire chapter because Jesus enters to forgive this crippled man of his sin. He heals him too. And in later verses, establishes himself as sent by the Father in order to forgive sins. But like I said, my dad's going to explain that, not me. <laughs> Now, um, I want to say that the symbolism of this location is actually further emphasized by the miraculous act being performed at the Pool of Bethesda. So Bethesda, in its Hebrew roots, is an epic mashup of Beth, meaning house, and Hesda, which is grace or mercy. Uh, the literal title of this place is the Pool of, house of, the, pool of the House of Grace or Mercy. Um, so this pool is actually referenced as the upper pool in both Isaiah 7.3 and 2 Kings 18.17. Um, so uh, the purpose for the visits to the pool um, are so that Isaiah can advise King Ahaz not to be afraid of Assyria and the upper kingdom, so Israel, laying siege to Jerusalem. So God, the Lord, the Lord actually speaks to Isaiah and says, talk to Ahaz at this pool, tell him, do not be afraid, I will deliver him, in, I'm paraphrasing, out of the hands, um, the Assyrians in the upper kingdom actually banded together to try and lay siege to Jerusalem. And in 2 Kings, um, this is where the emissaries of the king of Assyria um, tell the emissaries of King Hezekiah, who's the king of Judea at the time, that Hezekiah should uh, surrender. Either way, um, this pool is a place of healing and mercy and forgiveness. This uh, setting for this miracle is perfect, um, as only God can be, to reiterate Jesus' very purpose in the visit and also on earth. Um, all right, so we'll go to John chapter 5, 3 through 4. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. 
The final half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are actually omitted in most modern texts and um, are not actually present in the more accurate translations of the Gospel of John or, uh, or the fragments of the original texts we have. Um, it is speculated that these pieces, so the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4, were actually side notes written into the margins on the original book of John uh, as to explain the, why people are gathered. Now, usually we treat um, extensions of the Bible with a certain amount of wariness, and rightfully so. We had to be, guard ourselves against, like, but, um, however, like the end of the Lord's Prayer, added by the Protestants, all right, and yours be the glory forever and ever, amen, this adds value and stays on message with the Bible, and it serves a purpose in the passage. Um, we, this is kind of a local legend, you know, angel comes down every once in a while, stirs the water, and, you know, somebody's healed. Or probably, you know, someone got better miraculously while standing in the water and then the legend was born. Um, but we all have our own personal and local and even national cultural superstitions and myth that help people to better understand who we are. You know, you look at, you know, especially the American West. It's one of my favorite periods in history because they wrote about the history while the history was occurring. They wrote a lot of Western novels during the Old West. It is amazing, all right? So likewise here, the legend of the stirring of the water goes to simply explain why people are gathered by the pool, and it provides actually a stark contrast uh, later in the chapter. And then so we'll move on to chapter John 5, 5 through 6. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? First things first, 38 years is a long time. Now, uh, they say actually during this time period that the average life expectancy was 35 years, um, but this number is um, very convoluted um, because they account for the low, the, sorry, the high mortality rate, the low infant survival rate, of the period, and so that drives the number way down. But if someone survived infancy and their first uh, two or three years, uh, it would be expected to, they would be expected to live around 60-ish years. Either number you choose to look at shows you how much suffering has been in this man's life. Uh, pers for perspective, I got super sick my freshman year. I was sick for nine months. This guy has been doing it for, th what, 37 years and three months longer than I have. Or I did. All right. He has suffered for approximately two-thirds of the average lifespan for those of the time. And we, we really don't know how old he is. So this could have been all of his life. It could have started when he was a teenager. Either way, innumerable time. Now, Jesus' power to know this man's situation without asking is actually illustrated in Hebrews 4.13. It reads, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So Jesus knows. All right? there, there's no question. Jesus doesn't even have to ask a question. He sees the man and he knows. The man who long suffered is known by Jesus. Jesus knows his pain, knows his suffering, comes to the man and asks a simple question. Wilt thou be made whole? I'm a fan of the KJV, so I put in the old-fashioned language there. And ironically enough, the man's response in verse 7 
It seems shocking when you first read it, but it's actually not when you dig into it. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. The man does not know Jesus, does not know that Jesus came through the gate that is associated with forgiving seals to heal him. He may know that Bethesda means house of mercy, and he certainly knows the, le the legend. And so he responds logically. He says, to be made well, I have to get in the pool. And I cannot get in the pool while it is stirred because others step over me. All right, we think, well, well he's talking to Jesus. Doesn't he know? Well, he, he doesn't know. And sometimes we don't always know either. And so we have to imagine this man's surprise in verse 8 when Jesus says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, this is the same command given in Luke 5.24, which is the man who was lowered through the roof. The major difference here is what is known about Jesus. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, the friends lower the man in through the roof on the basis of Jesus' reputation. This man has arguably no idea who Jesus is and listens to him anyway. We, are, we as the reader are kind of given a blank slate to be applied to our own situation as to why the man decided to try and get up. He did not know Jesus. He's been ill for 38 years. And this stranger from Galilee, he's probably got a northern accent. I don't know what a northern Galilean accent sounds like, but I assume he knows what a northern Galilean accent sounds like. And he, this average-looking dude, which Jesus was, says, rise. And he decides to do it. Now, that the decision process, you know, astounded me. Now, I think it's pretty easy to conceive that the man was so down and defeated that his mentality was, what do I have to lose? Um, but this to me is in, oh, sorry, I wrote really confusing words here. Um, <laughs> so applying my own spin to the non-explicity in Scripture, all right? So because the verse is non-specific about why he decided to get it and walk, I'm going to give you why I think he got up. I think that it's not because he was down and defeated. Um, I think about the own, my own depths of pain. At this point, you know, what do I have to lose? It's not worth getting up, you know, and that was after six months, not after 38 years. Um, but um, so what I think why he got up is because Jesus is the son of God. And the entire purpose of John 5, 16, all the way to the end, is to declare his holy lineage amongst other things. I think the man sensed the power Jesus held and thus rose on Jesus' authority alone. I can remember those days, the depths of my despair, and there was no reason to get up except for my mom or God said so. And so, <laughs> yeah, plain and true. You know, I did not get dressed. I did not get showered unless my mom said so, and I did, and I was infinitely better for it. All right, but we all know people like this who can walk into a room and just simply be powerful. They are certainly not always the most attractive, though it is sometimes the case. And you certainly do not always know their reputation, but by the simple manner of the way they carry themselves, you know they are a powerful person. Now, this can lead to all sorts of cons and stuff, but that, that idea, you know, of how one's, one carries oneself is powerful. All right, and I think back again to when I was sick and we would go to these doctor's appointments. 
And, you know, by the third or fourth doctor, I was kind of done. I was over it, you know. Um, but my mom's hope for a cure allowed me to sit through those doctor's visits. Even though they, they said nothing time after time, again, my mom's resilient hope carried me through. Now, I only suffered nine months. This man was infirmed for 38 years, and Jesus became his hope. His presence, Jesus' presence was so powerful, and Jesus commands the man to rise on, on nothing but Jesus' authority and voice. Verse 9 tells us the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And just like that, his infliction is gone. I, I long for and love the absolutism that this verse portrays. He is infirm, he is sick, and then with Jesus, he is suddenly healed. Now, of course, his journey to heaven and his true acceptance of Jesus Christ, it's a, it's a lifetime worth of process. But this miracle is a clear illustration, if nothing else, of our transformation from damned to save. We are damned, and then we are saved. The process to heaven is a lifetime. All right, It always has. But there is a clear marked difference in each of our lives when Jesus enters and heals us, whether in this massive miracle or not, all right? We've all experienced this transformation in one way or another, but at an even greater magnitude, all right? Our real salvation is simply poorly mirrored by this man's healing. It is in these miracles that we see a reflection of heaven. And we'll move on to John chapter 5, uh, verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, personally speaking, um, I don't know much about the custom, especially surrounding the Sabbath. So I was surprised, as all get out, that this man simply carrying his mat was a violation of the law. But uh, come to find out that carrying is actually one of 39 types of work outlawed on the Sabbath. Um, however, carrying is specifically prohibited on uh, the precedent set by Jeremiah 17, verses 21 through 22. Um, Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but how the Sabbath as I commanded your fathers." Um, like I said, there are 39 different types of work that are outlawed on the Sabbath. Um, so they are carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying. I really don't want to be sent to Jewish prison for tying my shoes in church, but we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Um, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling building, demolishing, trapping, slaughtering, shearing, tanning, smoothing, and marking. Now, my father is a huge fan of the Animaniacs, so I challenge him to write a song set to the beat of the countries. But uh, <laughs> So as stated, um, this carrying of the mat is a direct rebellion against Jewish law and is actually one of several miracles performed by Jesus on the Sabbath. All right, others include uh, the concurred expulsion of a demon, and the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Luke 4, 31 through 39. Um, the Pharisees actually weren't present for this one, so Jesus, Jesus didn't get any flack from the church. 
Um, so there was the healing of the man with dropsy, um, which is actually another term for edema or the swelling of tissue. And edema is the swelling of tissue due to an excess of liquid. But this one was actually at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and he got challenged and then subsequently proved the church wrong there. And then Matthew 12, 9 through 14, which is where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. And actually right before that, uh, the disciples are picking up the leftover grain, and that's that story. Um, this is going to say that Jesus is, he's subtly in this passage here. Um, even the, and it's especially important to remember that the man doesn't remember Jesus' name, all right? And so, but Jesus came in his father's name, all right? And I want to make this clear, um, that Jesus is not coming to abolish the Sabbath, all right? If you read Matthew 5, 17, you know, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Um, and we got to remember that Sabbath is actually included under Jesus's two-commandment distillation of the Ten Commandments, um, Matthew 22, 37 through 39 is that very passage. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <sighs> now, holding true to a Sabbath is extremely important to maintaining a relationship with and to glorifying God, but I do not believe that the date is strict. Um, so I'm going to tell the story, and I don't know if Gavin remembers this, but I have to give a slight disclaimer, okay? I have nothing against Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, one of my best friends in the world, she's Seventh-day Adventist. They're great, godly people. But um, uh, Gavin and I were in Target. We were in this Lego section, and this, this young guy who's probably two or three uh, years older than I am. <laughs> now, see, Gavin does remember came up to us and said oh, out loud, do you know what day the Sabbath is? <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, Gavin and I, being the, the good Christians we are, look him dead in the eye and say, well, sir, it's, it's Sunday. And he immediately says to us, wrong. <laughs> now, I don't know if, how many of you have uh, experience with salesmanship. That's not how you do it. <laughs> uh, and now, of course, in... Back today, you know, I can't help but laugh. You know, I'm taking all sorts of marketing classes. I'm just like, oh, buddy. And, you know, if you are trying to convince someone of something, I do not suggest telling them that their deep-rooted traditions are wrong or sticking a phone in their face that says, you're right, oh, he pulled up the definition, the Jewish Sabbath, right in Google. Boom! Let me tell you, he may very well have been right, but let me tell you, I'm not changing my mind or joining your youth group. <laughs> but with complete honesty, I can say with confidence and maybe a touch of youthful arrogance that God does not care if you worship on Saturday or Sunday or Tuesday. Now, it is rather bold, but I do not hesitate. God cares about our relationship with him and that you spend time with him and rest. We, we as humans, we have this tendency to pick out the most insignificant details, all right? We, we focus on the Sabbath day instead of spending time with God. 
All right. It does not matter, like I said, if it's a Tuesday. I don't know why I picked Tuesday. It was just the day of the week. <laughs> or a Saturday or a Sunday. Take some time for the creator of the universe. I guarantee you won't regret it. Um, it's kind of been heavy on my heart uh, to learn how to rest and in so build my relationship with God. It's rather ironic. Um, I know some of you have met my girlfriend, Briley, um, but I've, I've taken these principles of building a relationship with God and I've applied it to us. You know, we have fairly busy lives, you know, between school and sports and other activities, not only for us, but for our siblings as well. Um, and it's fairly active, but our time together is rarely so active. It is napping on the couch or watching a movie with the boys. And it has actually led to a tremendous growth in how appreciative we are of each other's company and actually has made us more comfortable with each other when it comes to dealing with the hard issues. Now, as far as my relationship with God, I find it hard. You know, and it always slips my mind at the beginning of the week. And um, I kick myself a little bit. Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm a fan of Pastor Stephen Furtick. Uh, we play the songs from Elevation Worship. He's the pastor at that church. And he's got, he, he asked this question to his, to his church, you know, are, are you hooking up with God? <laughs> you know, and it's just like, oh, you know, some, day, some days I am, you know. Am I, am I praying you know, I ask myself these questions. Am I, am I praying because I want to talk to God or am I trying to talk to God because I can't sleep? You know, I have to give, you know, of course God is there and he's there to give me peace, but I've got to go to him and say, hey, I want to build this with you. Will you build it with me? And every single time he says, yes. You know, I spend a lot of active time with God. I'll tell you what, I listen to all sorts of sermons when I lift and I read myself before, read my Bible before bed or when I'm stressed and stuff like that. But I scarcely spend long, devoted periods of time in the Word. And most of us are like that. But we have to grow towards God. Resting in Him once makes it infinitely easier the second time. As with anything, our God is an amazing God and wants us to come to Him. Uh, St. Augustine uh, said, I've read many beautiful things in Plato and Cicero, but never this. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And this verse ends in the best possible way. And he says, and I will give you rest. Let's rest in Jesus more. Let's rest in God the Father we're going to jump back into John chapter 5, uh, verse, verses 11 and 12. Uh, the man who was healed, he answered them. He said, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Well, this is an interesting answer to the earlier statement in verse 10, which is, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Um, but you're going to have to forgive me for this one. But this is how I imagine this interaction and it is between a hypothetical me and the cops. All right, so I am walking across the street. There are no cars coming. And the cops ask me, it is against, or they, they don't really ask me, but they tell me, it is against the law to jaywalk. And I reply, well, my mom, who gave birth to me, said it's okay to jaywalk if there are no cars coming. Another disclaimer. 
My mom has never explicitly told me it is okay to jaywalk. <laughs> explicitly told me it is okay to jaywalk. <laughs> right. And then the cops, of course, then go to say, who the heck is your mom? <laughs> now, this example is poor, but the mentality and the tone of that uh, reflects um, the hierarchy of authority that we as Christians must have. All right, we must respect God's authority and Jesus's above all others, regardless of the consequences. We have to have the mind and the will to bear all of the earthly consequences that come with the Great Commission. All right, think of Job. His kids died, wife left him, lost his livestock, was literally tortured by the devil on this very earth. And he did not renounce God. He knew that anything he suffered on earth could not be compared to the suffering in hell, and we must come to the same realization. In our pursuit of spreading the gospel, there will be persecution and consequences for preaching the gospel under the laws of man. All right, uh, Martin Luther, founder of the Lutheran Church, and ironically enough, he hated the fact that they named the church after him, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and uh, the Catholic Church actually held, it's called a diet. So I don't know exactly what that means, but they gathered basically the leaders of the different German states and the, leader, the Catholic leaders in that section, and uh, they branded uh, Martin Luther a heretic. And any person who found his writings would be branded the same. Now, the punishment for heresy at the time was to uh, be burned at the stake. But yet, uh, he is the father of Protestantism. And he, he spread the literal word of God to any common man who could read. One of the biggest things in his 95 Thesis was that the Bible wasn't available to everybody. And sermons weren't even available to everybody. They were preached in Latin. So unless you were a peasant farmer with a penchant for speaking languages you had never really understood before, you wouldn't actually receive the gospel. All right? Martin Luther understood and we must understand that there is no metric to truly describe how horrid separation from God is. All right, so we move on to John chapter 5, verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So this is actually one of the most human verses in the Bible for, for one of two reasons. One, the man simply did not ask for Jesus' name. And uh, two, Jesus withdrawing from the crowd. Oh, excuse me. It is so remarkably human for even those of us who have an affinity for names to have a phenomenal time talking with someone. Now, I know it is not quite the same as a miraculous healing, but please have a little bit of perspective with me. And we get to the end of dinner or a potluck or a conference, and you come to the stark realization that one of two things has occurred. You have either forgotten your brilliant converser's name, or you both connected so well so suddenly that asking for a name didn't even occur to either of you. We've, we've all been there, you know. We've been sitting talking to, you know, Joe Schmo, it's been great. And then we realized that Joe Schmo isn't actually Joe Schmo, he's Dave. But we did not know he's Dave, not yet. But to underscore my previous point, all right, the fact that the man who was a Jew, who knew the law, obeyed the commands of the man he did not know the name of and knew it to be true. That is the amazing thing 
about the authority Jesus has is that when he gives a command, you simply know it is right and just. Oh, um, as for the humanity uh, of Jesus leaving, um, we, we get that. You know, you go into a place, and as soon as that place fills up, I know the, the, the action is simple. It's just time to go. You know, um, I love the insights into our Savior's humanity because I can look at that moment and say, me too, Jesus. Me too, all right? Jesus' relatability makes him an authority, and more than that, a comforting authority to look to, all right? Um, we've we've got to remember that Jesus was both man and God. Uh, that, that very idea actually split the original Catholic Church, but it's, uh, that's unimportant for the rest of the message. All right, there we go. Sorry, folks. Um, now, here's, here's our, uh, I, what did I say, show-stopping, jaw-dropping conclusion. And that's John verses chapter four, four, chapter five, fourteen through fifteen. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, "See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you." The man departed, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. It's a wondrous thing because two things are here. All right, the man who was healed was at the temple. Probably hours after the greatest moment of his life, he was healed. He went to church. He went to praise the Lord and give thanks for the blessings he received. I do not know if he went to his family first or even if he had a family, but on the day of his healing, he went to church. The man was drawn to God and sought to glorify his heavenly father. The day of the miracle, he went to church. All right, now I, I got to use a different definition of church. Um, church in this sense is a, a place to worship God, whether it's the temple, you know, everybody worship God, worships God in different manners and in different places and in different ways. But the important thing is that you go and glorify God. Um, this amazes me, but even more amazing is that Jesus found it. I can imagine, given some grace and uh, the, uh, the ideas above, the smile on Jesus' face and the thought, yay, he found my father's home. Jesus sought him out and is something that can be true in our own lives. And this pattern of actions is truly remarkable and spotable if you look in your own life. All right, and here's the pattern. All right, God works through you. You seek God. God seeks you. All right. I played in a golf tournament yesterday, as some of you know, and I got to see one of my old coaches. And it was kind of a surprise. He came up behind me, clasped me on the shoulder, and stuck out his hand and asked, how have you been? Um, but that, that feeling, when you've not seen someone in a long time, what you really ought to have is the feeling every time Jesus seeks us. All right, That pleasant, strong clasp on the shoulder, it surprises you, it elates you, and it makes you feel like you belong. When someone seeks you, you ought to know that you belong. And Jesus wants us to know we belong. It is also an important note that after miracles in our own lives, obvious or not, we seek God. Whether a literal or a metaphorical church, I beg you, after a miracle, go to church, praise the Lord. All right, now the command at the end of verse 14, go and sin no more, is uh, one of the most powerful phrases in the entire Bible without any doubt, without any argument, 
all right? This command is actually only given twice, and only in the Gospel of St. John. Um, and outside of our current passage, the other passage, and actually it's far more famous, is the forgiveness of the adulterous woman in John 8, 11. You know, obviously, for those, you know, to refresh your memories, you know, the Pharisees drag this adulterous woman caught in the middle of her adultery, drag him before Jesus and says, Teacher, you know, she has sinned under the law. She ought to be stoned. Once again, please forgive me for my paraphrasing. And, you know, Jesus says, Let he who commits the, who has not committed a sin throw the first stone. The Pharisees, stumped, obviously, walk away. And then, you know, Jesus, and then, uh, Jesus asks her, um, how many of those stand and still condemn you, or something of that manner? And then she responds in John 8, 11, and she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I have a, a certain mantra that has helped me learn to forgive myself. Um, you know, I've, I've struggled with that, and people struggle with different things, and that's one of them. You know, when I mess up, I a rather large tendency to beat myself up for weeks on end, but I, I wrote this down on a sticky note. I've got a whiteboard with all of my goals on it, and one of my daily goals is this mantra. It is, do the next right thing. And I think that that attitude in uh, both of its potentialities is explored in both John 5 and John 8. So um, there are only two possibilities and two things that you can do in any given situation, and that is the wrong thing or the right thing. Plain, true, simple. Now, in, any, in the moment, it may be shades of gray, and only with retrospect, you come to the conclusion that you did either right and wrong. No matter how you shake it out, two options, right and wrong. Now, John 8 reflects what Jesus would say after you have done the wrong thing. After you've done the wrong thing, Jesus would say, go and sin no more. Go do the next right thing. All right, so the image of the adulterous woman gives us a manner of perspective that is both drastic and necessary because she did do wrong by God and by the law. But the only thing she can do, the only thing after that horrendous sin is the next right thing. That's all any of us can do after any sin. Now, John 5 actually illustrates the exact opposite. All right, the man has done nothing wrong in the sight of God. In fact, he was healed by the son. But Jesus' response is the exact same as it was to the adulterous woman. Go and sin no more. So if you happen to make the right decision, do the next right thing. No matter how you look at these words, Jesus' utterance of them actually reflects one of his purposes for coming to earth. In uh, John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Um, now, come to the conclusion, and I mentioned the stirring of the water earlier, um, because Jesus is the living water. The, the, you know, the man believed that he was going to get healed by walking down into the water after the angel had stirred it up, but instead he was healed by uh, the, the living water. Um, the man had to believe that the water would heal him. He just, he didn't know which water it was going to be. Alrighty, in John 4, 13 through, 
4, 13 through 14, it is this point. He said, Jesus answered and said to her, now this is the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now this is the gospel. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, it is like a spring, or, or I was thinking maybe a geyser. You know, you think a old faithful, or you go up to Yellowstone, and there are some that are a little more erratic. You know, you may get regular spurts, you know, of everlasting life, or once in a great while, but even still, the everlasting water is still inside of you, and your faith is in that water and the man who gives it. And uh, that's all I have for you, folks. Wow, that was some good stuff today. Now we get to do communion. How's that? All right. Uh, so we have the um, the elements up here on the side. Please, everyone, join us. Uh, elders, can you help lead folks up? We'll get everyone served up here, and then uh, and I'll say a few words. Um, everyone is welcome. Please uh, to take communion. Um, John, can you get folks started on on this side? Um, it doesn't matter if you're a member here, if you're a visitor here, if you take Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Please join us uh, in having communion. Uh, we'll lead everyone up by rows. They can come and get the elements. Uh, take the elements at your own time. If you guys want to wait, um, you can uh, uh, follow along with me when uh, when I read from uh, from John. Oh, excuse me, Luke. Jeez, Luke 22. Man, got John on the brain this morning. everyone served everybody we don't want to admit anybody i think you all are, are working on it but so there's that little plastic layer on the top we are almost done with these things i think we got like one more communion and then we're back to the <laughs> that, that, that'll be a blessing when we have the next communion we'll have the, these for the last time 
and then we'll um, but there's this little plastic thing on the top that gets you to the little cracker there and then there's the the foil one that gets you to the um, to the juice inside my wife has fingernails if anyone needs some help I do not <laughs> I know <laughs> I usually have to hand it to her I think Beckett preset this one for me so that I had an easier time did everyone get all right it's one of the greatest things we do is celebrating communion uh, we're in Luke chapter 22 and it says on the the night of his arrest they're having the Passover dinner and he uh, took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured it and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, for whenever you eat of this bread, or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Father, you bless us abundantly. The children that led us today, their worship, their words, like a breath of fresh, clean air. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you that he went to the cross for us. Thank you for the men and women who died to give us the opportunity to gather today in your name. Thank you for our church. Lord, we ask that you keep us on your path, that we would see you clearly, that we would hear you, and that we would obey. Father, please help us to love one another, genuinely love each other. Please give us opportunities and resources to reach out to our brothers and sisters and the courage to follow through. Please bless our children. Please, Lord, help us to proclaim you loudly in whatever way that means to those who have not heard you or seen you. Please help us take time to rest in you and to build our relationship with you. Thank you for your son, Father. We thank you in your son's holy name, Jesus Christ.